Turn with me to Matthew 5. And we'll look at verses 27 to 30. We may or may not get through this today. I'm not sure. I don't really anticipate doing that, but we'll see. It says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. In Matthew 5, Jesus answered the question in the forefront of the minds of the people who had seen his miracles and heard what he said, and were really wondering whether or not he was the Messiah. They were curious about whether this miracle worker was, in fact, the one who would bring God's kingdom. And there were certain elements in the teaching and life of the ministry of Jesus that made them think that he might be the Messiah. And so they're wondering if such could be the case. And they wanted to know what his standards were for his kingdom. They knew that if he was the Messiah, his teaching would square up with what Moses said. And so they were curious about how he viewed the things of the law of God, the Mosaic law. So Jesus summarized his message to them in verses 17 to 20, just to remind you, uh, remind yourself, look again at what he said there. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, what he was saying was, I'm the Messiah and my message is the same message that Moses gave you. There's no difference. I would not change it. I would not destroy it. I would not alter it. I came to fulfill it. And then he went a step further. He says, the standards for my kingdom must exceed the standards that you are now living by. You're living by the self-righteous standards of those who externally keep the law. My standards are much higher. Now, insofar as the people knew, the scribes and Pharisees were the most righteous people they knew. So this was a very hard saying for them to understand. They didn't understand how he could require a higher righteousness than that of the scribes and Pharisees because they thought that the scribes and Pharisees kept the law of Moses to the max. And so the question in their minds is, if you believe in the law of Moses, how can you require a higher standard than the scribes and Pharisees who teach us the law of Moses? But although the scribes and the Pharisees sat in the seat of Moses and claimed to be the proponents of the law of Moses, the truth was that they had lowered the standards of the law of Moses to their own design and were not keeping that which God originally intended. And so Jesus comes to lift the standard back up to where it was in the beginning. Now, this is hard for the people to understand. And so point by point, the Lord goes through verses 21 to 48 
giving them illustrations of how the scribes and Pharisees and the people as well fell short on every aspect of God's absolute standard. He wants them to see that they were not living up to God's standard. They had lowered the standard and he wants to raise it back up to where it really should be. And in effect, what he does here is to destroy any system of self-righteousness. That's what man does. If he, if he doesn't want to come to God the way God prescribes, he creates his own system. He creates his own God. He, he uh, says, I have determined that this is what is required. This is what I can accomplish. Therefore, I am justified when I do it. He drags the law of God down to a level that he can do. And then he does it and thus convinces himself that he's okay. You, you hear this all the time when you speak to someone today. You ask someone, where do you think you will go when you die? And the typical response is, well, I hope I'm going to heaven. So if you follow that up by saying, well, why should God let you into his heaven? Uh, the standard answer is, well, I'm a pretty good guy. I haven't killed anybody. I'm faithful to my wife. I try to tell the truth as much as possible. I'm good to my neighbors, and I try to help those in need whenever I can. So I think God will certainly let me into heaven. In other words, you invent the kind of God you want and with the kind of standards that you can keep. And then you think that that justifies you so that you will be able to go to heaven. And what Jesus says to a person like that is, that's not the way it is. The standard of God is too high. You can't keep it. The scribes and the Pharisees had invented a standard lower than the divine standard, figured out how they could keep it, kept it the best that they could, and thereby convinced themselves that they were righteous. And Jesus says, not on your life. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never, ever enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to illustrate just how high God's standard actually is with six illustrations from the law. Now, we've already seen the one on murder in verses 21 to 26. So now we come to verses 27 to 30. He's giving another illustration of how the people had lowered the law of Moses to an achievable level and how he must lift it back up again in order to destroy their self-righteousness. And what he does throughout this chapter is to contrast the righteousness they thought they had with the true divine standard. And so he strips all men and women stark naked, spiritually speaking, before God. They have no claim of self-righteousness left. Now in verses 27 to 30, he illustrates his point in regard to adultery and sexual sin in general. And he focuses on the deed of adultery and the desire behind the deed and deliverance from it. Let's begin with the deed itself, the deed. He says there in verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Just as with the first illustration of murder, Jesus begins this one by quoting one of the Ten Commandments, specifically the seventh one. And what he's telling them is that this is what the rabbis have taught you. They have told you that God's standard is that so long as you don't commit adultery, you are righteous. But sin is not simply 
what you do, it's what you feel and think in your heart. Just back in verses 21 to 22, they said, you shall not commit murder. Jesus says, everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. He's saying, I'm telling you that it isn't just a matter of whether you do the murder. It's an issue of what you feel in your heart. And here he is saying exactly the same thing, only using another illustration. In verses 21 to 26, his illustration was the sixth commandment. Here in verses 27 to 30, his illustration is the seventh commandment. The underlying principle of the sixth commandment is the sacredness of life. And the underlying principle of the seventh commandment is the sacredness of marriage. And he says, you are not righteous before God if you've ever been angry or if you've ever thought about adultery. And what he's trying to do is show them how really sinful they were, no matter what their outer behavior was like. And so his concern here is the sanctity of marriage. Let me just say another word about these two illustrations that Jesus began with. Anger and sex are two very powerful things. They really reach deep down into human experience. They aptly illustrate the sinfulness of man. In fact, I doubt that there are any two illustrations that are more apt than these two uh, because they really cut us to the very core. We've all experienced the temptations of anger and lust, and they reach deep into the basic sinfulness of man. And so these Jews who were sitting on the hillside in Galilee, hearing the Lord confronting them about their anger and about the lust in their hearts, would have to admit by virtue of their own consciences, consciences that they had indeed, that they were indeed sinners. And the fact that they had never killed anyone and the fact that they had never actually committed the act of adultery didn't exonerate them from the sinfulness of sin which reigned in their hearts. And the same thing applies to us who are gathered here this morning. Jesus wants to go right to the heart of man and show them that no matter what they have done, they couldn't fit into his kingdom. And so Jesus sets a high standard. The fact that he says that anyone who looks at a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart is a tremendous statement to everyone living in our society today where the temptations are so vast. Temptation's always been around. It doesn't matter whether a woman is covered from head to toe uh, with a, in a burqa with a veil over her face, the temptation is still there because Satan moves in to generate that lust in the sinful, fallen heart of man. There are always those things that this devil will, devil will use to generate lust and which the flesh will pounce upon to initiate the temptation. But it seems to me that the society in which we live where the temptations are much more rampant and are so much more visible and far more common because of the lack of virtue in our society, that it is much more difficult for men and women today than it was even when Jesus spoke these words. Uh, I mean, they didn't have computers and the Internet in which pornography of all sorts would be immediately available to them with just a few keystrokes. Uh, and society's preoccupation with sex has spilled over into the church. 
Uh, there are now churches which sponsor explicit sex seminars. And there is at least one celebrity pastor who used to have, used to make a habit of giving very explicit sermons on sex and wrote a sex manual for Christians. Uh, he ran his church like a tyrant, uh, demanding loyalty from others or else they were booted out of his church uh, and they were shunned by the church members who were loyal to him. Uh, after he was exposed as a wolf in sheep's clothing because uh, he had a social media presence under a false name in which he made lewd, profane, and demeaning comments about women and sex, uh, the elders conducted a, an investigation in which he was deemed disqualified from ministry. He resigned from the church, but less than two years later, he started another church 1,400 miles away in another state. Uh, and from what I've read, it looks like he runs that church just like he did the last one, except that he doesn't have any elders in this new church to hold him accountable. He made sure of that. So we live in a culture in which sex is constantly presented to us. Sex between single adults is considered to be normal and expected. Uh, and there are groups which promote adultery as being no big deal, just satisfying a biological urge that ought to be satisfied. Now, we are undergoing another sexual revolution in our country. Just six years ago, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the fundamental right to marry was guaranteed to same-sex couples. And at, the same, at that time, the homosexual community told us that the right to marry was all they wanted, that there was no reason to be concerned about any further demands. But now... We're faced with constant demands that we approve of transgender couples, of polyamory, which is being involved with multiple people and multiple sexual relationships with the approval of everyone involved. Uh, and that there are even those beginning to promote the idea that pedophilia is okay if the child consents. Um, so we have certainly seen a major sexual revolution in our nation over the past six years. It reminds me of the Roman Empire, uh, where it was common for a man to have a wife, a mistress, and a young boy as sexual lovers. Uh, we truly live during a time of degraded morality. Um, we could spend hour after hour just illustrating how bad our society has become, but that's not necessary. You know it's all around you. I remember that back in 1987, 34 years ago, I had the opportunity to attend the FBI National Academy. And one of my instructors taught our class that we should adopt what was called situational ethics in our management styles at our police agencies. Uh, now, most of us were seasoned supervisors and managers who didn't buy that argument, but I think it explains how the FBI has gotten itself in so much trouble over recent years. Uh, because its agents have been taught that it's okay to do whatever you think is right, depending upon the circumstance of the situation. It says there's no absolute right, there's no absolute wrong. And, and that kind of thinking and, and uh, teaching is what has permeated our entire society in regard to sex. Uh, it's simply do whatever you feel is okay, so long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, rather than holding up a standard of morality that says this is right and this is wrong. Uh, so if you want to have sex with another consenting adult, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks in, to our society. But the philosophy, uh, this philosophy of sexual hedonism 
is not new to our day. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 6 for a moment. 1 Corinthians 6, it was common in New Testament times, and Paul faced it full force in Corinth. The, Cor the Corinthians were living in a city which was the site of the famous temple of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love and sexuality. There were temple prostitutes all over the place, and sex was considered a religious practice. And so the church there was invaded with the thinking that sex was just a normal desire that ought to be satisfied. In 1 Corinthians 6.13, he quotes a common idiom of that time when he says, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. That was a little phrase that they were saying. So if someone came along and said, hey, you shouldn't be having sex outside of marriage, uh, that's wrong. They would say, well, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. And what they meant by that is it's only biology. It's only a natural function, just like eating, sleeping, and drinking. And Paul answers that argument. And he says, but God will do away with both of them, yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. You see, the body is not just biological. It's also spiritual, and it belongs to the Lord. You can't just give your body over to your sexual desires and say it's only biology. For Christians, it is a member of Christ, a temple of the Holy Spirit, and it belongs to the Lord rather than to us. That's what Paul says in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be, verse 16. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. In other words, sex results in a unity with the one to which you are joined. So if you're engaged in sex outside of marriage, whether adultery or fornication, you have been spiritually united with that person rather than with God. Verse 18, flee immorality. Don't just walk away. Be like Joseph with Potiphar's wife to run as hard as you can in the other direction. So flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You are not the captain of your own destiny. You have the indwelling Spirit of God in you, and you're not free to do whatever you wish because you belong to Christ. And then verse 20 wraps it up saying, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Think about what it cost God to purchase your soul and then glorify God in your body. Don't be involved in immorality of any kind. Now, having said those things, let me point out that we have other people, other Christians who think about sex in a rather prudish way. In their minds, sex is shameful, it's depraved, it's less than holy. I grew up around some believers like that, particularly Christian women. Uh, they had a viewpoint that saw sex with their husband as the unfortunate thing they had to endure a few times in order to bear children. But that is not what the Bible teaches about sex between a husband and a wife. 
uh, continuing on down into the next chapter in 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses that issue. He writes in chapter 7, verse 3, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife. He's talking about the sex act here. And likewise, also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time that you may devote, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In other words, he says you have every right and every responsibility to give your body to each other in the fulfillment of sexual desire. That's within marriage. That's God's design. In Proverbs, God deals with the same thing. Proverbs 5, he's warning about young men consorting with an adulteress. And in verse 15, he says, drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. In other words, enjoy your wife. Stay away from the adulteresses, the prostitute, because it will end in your destruction. Verse 16, should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times, be exhilarated always with her love. So God has designed the physical relationship of a husband and his wife, and he has sanctified it and blessed it. In the Song of Solomon, God goes on and on in that letter to tell us about his design for human love in a marital situation. If you want a good commentary on that, get a copy of The Pleasures of Marriage. It's available on Amazon for $10.99, and it's written by a pastor you might know by the name of Steve Kreloff. Um, and so the human sexual relationship is one which God designed to be pure and right within the context of marriage but our world has turned it into all kinds of twisted, jaded, lecherous perversion. And of course, that appeals to the heart of sinful, evil men. So as we come to this passage in verses 27 to 30 of Matthew 5, it's very instructive for the society in which we live, those who think they are righteous before God because they've never been involved in an actual act of adultery. So we need to see what Jesus is saying. Now the Pharisees had their own viewpoint found in verse 27. It says, you shall not commit adultery. And because they didn't do that, they thought they were righteous. They thought they'd go right into the kingdom and have the chief seats. Maybe you're like that. Maybe you say to yourself, I'm not so bad. I've never actually gone out on my wife. I've never committed adultery. I've never done anything like that kind of thing. Now, with that thought in mind, let me remind you that verse 27 starts with the words, you have heard that it was said. Uh, that points to their misunderstanding of God's law. Now, if you only took verse 27 on its face without any other context, you would say, well, verse 27 is correct. God did say that we are not to commit adultery. But Jesus' correction in verse 28, where he says, but I say to you, indicates that the problem was that they had taken that simple statement from the Ten Commandments and turned it into a purely outward act. So long as you didn't go to the physical act of adultery, you were okay. You were right before God. You deserved to go to heaven. They had reduced the law of God to a simple external. And Jesus says, they haven't given you the whole story. They've told you that you don't have to 
commit adultery and that's if that's it, you're okay. I'm telling you there's more to it than just that. Now, Jesus focuses on adultery here, which specifically refers to a sexual relationship between a man and a woman in which one or both of them are married to someone else. But don't look at this and think, well, I'm single and this is dealing with married people, so this doesn't apply to me. No, because there are many other places in Scripture which clearly indicate that any kind of sexual sin with either single or married people is sin. Uh, the word immorality includes both adultery and fornication as well as pornography, homosexuality, and every other kind of sexual sin. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, Paul said, Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals will inherit the kingdom of God. And in Hebrews 13, 4, the writer tells us marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Regardless of how much a couple may care for each other and be deeply in love, sexual relations outside of marriage are forbidden. In every case, without exception, it is a heinous crime against God. And let me just add that that includes engaged couples. Just because they're committed to each other and plan to marry other couples, including, you know, the, uh, marry one another, uh, couples including Christian couples are often enticed to engage in sexual relations before marriage. In fact, in conversations with Steve, Joe, and Jack, uh, the three guys who performed the most premarital counseling around here, they all say that it is uncommon for them to have an engaged Christian couple sitting before them who have not yet engaged in sex before their marriage. Uh, but that is just as much of a sin as any other act of immorality. So that is the deed, the physical act of adultery. So let's see the next point, which is the desire. Look at verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now this is a fascinating verse. The Lord forces the self-righteous to face the fact that they are not holy. The, the Pharisees were saying, we don't do that, we don't commit that sin. And Jesus drives his point right down into their hearts. It's as if he held up Psalm 66, 18 uh, to them. It says, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Uh, God is always examining the sin of the heart. It's the internal that breaks the relationship. And so it is that Jesus says, I'm concerned about what's on the inside. Now let's begin by looking at the words. He says, but I, and it's emphatic. In the Greek, it's as if he said, but I, I say to you. He's saying, I'm the new authority. You have had rabbinic tradition as your authority, but my word is greater than your traditions. Sometimes their rabbinic traditions were true to Moses, but sometimes they were not. And in this case, it was accurate to what Moses taught. But nonetheless, he's referring to the rabbinic tradition. He says, you have had that, but I'm a new authority. And by the way, he said that this in such an authoritative way that when he was finished with the sermon, they were shocked 
because he spoke with such authority. So he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks, the word looks is a present active participle. It refers to continuous ongoing looking. Now that's important. It's not an inadvertent, incidental, or involuntary glance, but rather an intentional and repeated gazing. It's the purposeful, repeated, lustful looking. It isn't the involuntary glance at all. It's, it's that which is purposeful. A.B. Bruce, a uh, Scottish theologian of the 19th century, wrote this, quote, the look is not casual but persistent, the desire not involuntary or momentary, but cherished, end quote. And Bible scholar D.A. Carson, great scholar, writes this, quote, this is not a prohibition of the normal attraction which exists between men and women, but of the deep-seated lust which consumes and devours, which in imagination attacks and rapes, which mentally contemplates and commits adultery, end quote. And by the way, I'll show you an interesting thing about this verse. Listen to what he says. Everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her. Now, listen up. He doesn't say that he commits adultery. He says, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Why? Because it is the vile, adulterous heart that results in the wanton look. The sin has already happened in the heart. The adultery is conceived and thus the look is prompted. That's why you may find in this life that someone passes into your gaze involuntarily as a temptation from Satan or maybe even tries to attract your attention. And an involuntary glance means you just resist and turn away. But when you latch on and cultivate and pursue the desire, it's because your lustful, adulterous heart has been seeking an object and you fulfill the fantasy that's already there in your heart. Now notice the word, yes. Billy Graham said something like, I, can, I can't prevent a bird from flying over my head, but I can certainly build him, uh, prevent him from building a nest on my head. Yes, <laughs> yes. It's true. Notice the word lust. Greek is very helpful here. It uses a Greek grammatical structure which refers to purpose. We might even translate it with a purpose to lust. In other words, it isn't an involuntary glance. It's a purposeful one. The heart is filled with adultery, wanting to find an object, to which to attach the fantasy. It's when you're looking for the woman to lust after, when you watch those images on, the, on that computer screen or movie screen or television screen because you know that you will see what you desire in your heart to see, that which will fulfill your lust. It's when you look to find the thing that panders to your lust. It's when you seek the object, its purpose, so it would read this way. I emphatically say to you that whoever continues looking on a woman with a purpose to lust for her gives evidence of already committing adultery in his heart. The continued look is the manifestation of the vile heart. 
And so what Jesus is saying is this. It's the heart that's the problem. It's not lustful looking that causes the sin in the heart. It's the sin in the heart that causes the lustful looking. The lustful looking is only the expression of a heart that is already immoral and adulterous. And one Bible teacher put it this way. The heart is the soil where the seeds of sin are embedded and begin to grow. Jesus is saying, if you look at a woman with lust, it's because already in your heart is a vile, lusting, adulterous attitude. And so you see, it's the heart that is the problem. It's the heart that has to be transformed. That's what he's saying. It's, it's out of the heart that evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, and fornications come. He's condemning looking at a woman as an object to gratify an adulterous heart. Let me just add this. Temptation to elicit sexual desire is not sin. When you happen to see a woman provocatively dressed, Satan will surely try to tempt you with lustful thoughts. The sin comes because of what you do with the temptation. If you entertain the temptation, if you maintain the temptation, if you pander to those evil thoughts, then it becomes the sin. In 2 Samuel 11, David is walking on his roof and he looks over and there's Bathsheba bathing in the courtyard below him. As the daughter of one of David's 30 mighty men and the wife of another one of them, she would have had access to the palace baths. So she was probably using it there for her ceremonial cleansing bath following her monthly cycle, never dreaming that she would be seen from the king's porch, perhaps feeling very safe there while bathing. And David, instead of turning away and going back to where he should be, continues to look and stare until his adulterous heart brings forth lust and adultery, and it ultimately ended both in the actual act and in the murder of her husband. The fact that he brought her into his chambers and committed adultery with her expressed the immoral desire that already existed in, her heart, in his heart. There's a proverb that I used to keep posted on the wall of my office at work which was derived from a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson. It said this, Watch your thoughts, for they become words. Watch your words, for they become actions. Watch your actions, for they become habits. Watch your habits, for they become character. Watch your character, for it becomes your destiny. The pro that process illustrates perfectly Jesus' main thrust in this passage. No matter where it ends, sin always begins with an evil thought that is sown in the mind and heart. Now listen, Proverbs 1.15 says, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They will look at something that is beautiful and make it something ugly. That's because their heart is defiled. That's why there's pornography. That's why the most popular TV shows and most popular movies focus on sex. Madison Avenue has found that humor and sex sell the most products. So when they can produce a commercial or advertisement that includes both, they'll sell a boatload of whatever product it is that they're marketing. That's why, and that's why comedians focus on telling dirty jokes that focus on sex. We have all that kind of stuff because the heart of man is so evil 
and mankind finds things to pander to his adulterous heart. Jesus is saying that if you've ever done that, you know the depths of sin, and you know that only a transformation from the inside can make a difference. Many years ago, Arthur Pink commented on this passage, and what he wrote would be absolutely vilified and castigated by our culture today, but that doesn't change the truthfulness of it. Uh, here's what he wrote, quote, By clear and necessary implication, Christ here also forbade the using of any of our other of our senses and members to stir up lust. If lustful looking is so grievous a sin, then those who dress and expose themselves with desires to be looked at and lusted after, as Jezebel, who painted her face, teared her head, and looked out of the windows, are not less, but perhaps more guilty. In this matter, it is not only too often the case that men sin, but women tempt them so to do. How great then must be the guilt of the great majority of the modern misses who deliberately seek to arouse the sexual passions of our young men, and how much greater still is the guilt of most of their mothers for allowing them to become lascivious temptresses, end quote. You see, it goes both ways. But our society seems to try to place all the blame for sexual lust and temptation on men, while giving women a free pass to dress any way they choose, no matter how provocative. They say, well, it's, it's not the woman's problem if the man is thinking sexual thoughts. That's his problem all the while ignoring the fact that they choose, they chose to dress in a manner which exposed parts of their body to the world or accentuated parts of their body to make them more obvious to onlookers. And while Jesus is talking here about a man lusting after a woman, he's assuming that it goes both ways, the other way, that women also lust after men. Both are wrong, as is helping create the lust by the way you dress. Several years ago, the wives of the elders in our church had noticed that many of the younger women were dressing in ways that accentuated or exposed certain features of their bodies to the men of our church. So they held a women's conference one weekend in which they focused on personal purity, and one of the things they specifically dealt with was dressing with modesty. And I'm pleased to say that there were some definite positive results from that. I know of several young women who changed the style of clothing they wore in public because they learned from the older women in that conference. Uh, ladies, the lust that women have for men often grows from a relationship of care and compassion. What I mean is that if a man shows respect and care and compassion to a woman, which he should, that woman may find herself attracted to that man, and out of that attraction she may begin to sinfully lust after that man. Uh, his physical appearance may not be that great. But if his character and personality are nice, she may be tempted to lust after him. But men are 180 degrees different. A man needs only see a woman's physical appearance to be lustfully attracted to her. If she looks like that which he finds attractive, he will quickly find himself drawn towards lust. So women need to understand that about men, and we need to teach our daughters and granddaughters that. Uh, because how a man thinks about a woman is so radically different than how a woman thinks about a man. In Job 31.1, Job said, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What was his covenant? Not to look. 
uh, and you'd better make a covenant with your eyes. Job went on to say in verses 7 and 8, If my step has turned from the way, or my heart followed my eyes, or if any spot has stuck to my hands, let me sow and another eat, and let my crops be uprooted. In other words, if I break the covenant with my eyes, let me starve. That's what he's saying. Job recognized that the thought is the father to the deed, and that he, if he allowed his eyes the privilege, they would pander to his adulterous heart. Just as the adulterous heart plans to expose itself to less satisfying situations, the godly heart plans to avoid them whenever possible and to flee from them when unavoidable. Just as the adulterous heart panders to itself in advance, so the godly heart protects itself in advance. The psalmist prayed in Psalm 119.37, Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity. And Paul exhorted Timothy to flee from youthful lust and to cultivate a pure heart. And so what Jesus is saying is that the heart has to be dealt with because the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. That's the issue. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a new heart. But the sinfulness of our fallen flesh still raises its sinful, ugly head, doesn't it? And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, your problem is too deep for your self-righteousness to handle. And just as the lust of their heart was too much for their self-righteousness to handle, so it is with us. Apart from the active work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to keep us focused on God's word rather than the desires of our sinful hearts. And then he goes a step further. And this is his final point. I don't know if we'll finish it. We'll see. And that's the deliverance. Look at verses 29 and 30. If your right hand makes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, when you first read that, you say, well, that's absolutely incongruous. If, is he, if he's saying the issue is the heart, why does he say, tear out your eye? Don't blind people lust? Of course they do. Uh, if you tore out your right eye because you had a lustful heart, your left eye would go crazy making up time for your lost right eye. Uh, if you got rid of your right hand because you had an adulterous heart, your left hand would be busier than ever trying to make up for it. Uh, Jesus is not saying that there's a physical remedy for a heart problem. That would undermine the whole point. But unfortunately, there have been several cases throughout church history in which people have taken him literally. The most famous case was that of Origen of Alexandria, uh, who had himself physically castrated in an attempt to overcome his sensual desires. Uh, he found out that doing so didn't work because he still had two eyes and a brain. So he continued to lust. So then what's Jesus saying? He's speaking of what has been called spiritual mortification. You see, to a Jew, the right eye and the right arm and the right leg were symbols of the best faculties that a man had. The right eye represented the best vision. The right hand represented the best skills. The right leg, his best strength. Uh, the right was always symbolic of the better of the two. And he is simply saying there's nothing too precious to eliminate from your life if it's going to cause your heart to pander to its adulterous desires. That's what he's saying. If it means getting rid of your most precious possession, then get rid of it, even if it's your right eye or your right arm. 
He said the same thing in Matthew 18, 7 and 8. You can read that uh, for yourself. It says the same thing. So he's really saying, all he's really saying is that anything that causes a man to remain in his sin and to satisfy the cravings of his adulterous heart should be eliminated, even if it's the most precious thing that you have. Nothing is so valuable as to be worth preserving at the expense of righteousness. Now, some guy comes along and says, I'm leaving my wife. I'm, I'm leaving her. Why? Well, I found another woman and we're in love. She does so much for me emotionally and sexually and in every other way than my wife does. She means everything to me. Here's Jesus' advice. Dump her. Get rid of her. You're pandering to your lust. Your soul is in danger of eternal damnation because you are revealing that you were consumed by sex, sinful lust rather than by a love of righteousness. And that's a characteristic of an unregenerate heart. You see, what Jesus is saying is that nothing is precious if it affects your eternal destiny. Sin must be dealt with radically. Paul said, I beat my body and make it my slave in order to gain control over it. And so Jesus calls for immediate action. He diagnoses the problem and says, tear it out, cut it off, eliminate it. Whatever it is in your life, whatever it is that feeds that heart of lust, whatever it is that feeds that adulterous thought, get rid of it. If you want to go to a movie or watch a particular movie, but you learn that it'll appeal to your sexual lust, don't go. If you have a problem with being drawn to pornography, put your computer in a place so that others can see what you're viewing and install an accountability program like Covenant Eyes and do the same thing on your smartphone and tablet. If you can't go to the beach without lusting after the women or the men that you see there, don't go. You say, Bruce, I don't go to the beach, but my neighbor always goes out and sunbathes in her backyard in a skimpy bikini, and I can't help but see her from my back window. What should I do? I say, what you should do is put down your binoculars and go to the other side of the house. <laughs> you see, Jesus isn't really talking about the physical. I know that, and you know that. He knows that cutting off your right hand isn't going to change an adulterous heart. Tearing out your right eye isn't going to change an adulterous heart. But what he is saying is that the most precious, take the most precious thing you have, your right arm, your right eye, if need be, and get rid of it if it stands in the way and brings you to sin. As I said before, some people have misunderstood this. There have been men who wish to free themselves from the problem of lust, and so they have did some strange things to their bodies. Some of them used to go into the Egyptian desert because they decided that they wanted to live alone and think, about nothing but God. One of the most famous men to do this was a fellow known as St. Anthony the Great. Uh, he was born into a wealthy Egyptian family, but his parents died when he was about 20, leaving him in the care of, with the care of his unmarried younger sister. And he tried to live a righteous life, but he was greatly bothered by his problem with lust. So he decided that Jesus' words in Matthew 19.21 to the rich young ruler that if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Uh, applied to him in a literal sense. So he gave away his family's lands to his neighbors, sold the remaining property and donated the funds to the poor, placed his sister in the care of a group of nuns, and then he left to go into the Egyptian desert to get rid of the feelings of lust that he had in his heart. And he lived like a hermit, and he fasted for days at a time. He would go days and days and days, keeping himself awake to punish himself as a righteous act. He would torture his body. And for 35 years, St. Anthony lived a 
monastic life out in the desert, having little contact with others. And here's what William Barclay records about him. Quote, for 35 years he lived in the desert and those 35 years were a nonstop battle without respite from his temptations. The story is told in his biography. First of all, the devil tried to lead him away from discipline, whispering to him the remembrance of his wealth, cares for his sister, claims of kindred, love of money, love of glory, the various pleasures of the table, and the other relaxations of life, and at last the difficulty of virtue and the labor of it. The one would suggest foul thoughts, the other counter them with prayers. The one fire him with lust, the other as one who seemed to blush, fortify his body with prayers, faith, and fasting. The devil one night even took upon him the shape of a woman and imitated all her acts simply to beguile Anthony. So for 35 years, the struggle went on, end quote. And the point of the story is, you can be all alone in the desert or on a mountaintop or on a deserted island and you will still have a battle with lust. Lust is a spiritual problem that cannot be overcome by simply removing that which is physical from your body, from your presence. It must be dealt with by spiritual means, with spiritual warfare, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Even then, it's a never-ending battle. It will go on your entire life until you're made perfect in heaven. Now, notice the word stumble. It's there. It's found in both verses 29 and 30. It is this word, scandalizo. Uh, we get our English word scandalize from that, obviously. Uh, it means to cause to stumble, to cause to sin, to fall into sin. Its passive form means to let oneself be led into sin, to fall away. The word is used, was used of a bait stick and a trap. Inside the trap, they would stick a bait stick. The trap would, the animal would come along and grab the bait on the bait stick and the trap would close. The same principle as a mouse trap. Uh, now here in both of these verses, it's a present tense active verb, meaning that it's speaking of continuous ongoing action. What Jesus is saying is that if your right eye is the bait stick that constantly catching you in the trap, when, when your adulterous lust is fulfilled, then tear it out. If your right hand is continually trapping you in sin, then cut it off. Whatever it is in your life that causes these vile, evil thoughts, get rid of them. Now there's a subtlety in this whole kind of thing. Let me look at this. I can't do it. We're at, we're at the end of our time. Let me just stop there. and I'll quickly finish it up next time and we will then move on into the next passage. Any other thoughts or questions? We've, I've been going like a, gushing like a fire hose up here. All right. Let me close us with prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the instruction that our Lord gave us in this passage. Lord, our hearts are so convicted by the, this issue. We're so consumed with lust. Even when we are trying our best to avoid it, it pops up all the time. So we just pray for your strength, the Holy Spirit, to help us do battle against it. Lord, we pray now as we go into the worship service that you would stir our hearts to praise and obedience to the word. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for being here. 
Jim? I can't hear you, Jim. Hey, uh, y'all folks, be quiet just a moment. I can't hear Jim. He's, he's asking something. No. It's it's hyperbole, but in the sec in the sense that it, you don't actually do that. But it, it's not hyperbole, hyperbole in the sense that you must cut off your most precious thing if need be. In the sense in that in your life you must be willing to give up the most precious things in order to beat sin. Okay. Bruce. Yes. Says it's okay if you see a pretty woman walking down the street, but if you drive around the block to look at her, week of this month it will be lit up in, in the uh, homosexual colors. Yep, I've, I've, about a big I'm surprised that it wasn't already done. Yeah, That's, considering that the whole month is yeah. right. I mean, Tampa did theirs, which doesn't surprise me because their mayor is a lesbian. They did the, the bridge over the uh, Hillsborough River right there by the, uh, right by the Strath yeah, Center. Yeah, I didn't know that. So, and I notice in everything, when you watch the Smithsonian channel, you know, at the lower right corner, they the have taken over everything. Yes. 